want to invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi 2, verse 17. We're continuing our series. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some at the back you can borrow. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those as our gift to you. We're going to be picking things up at chapter 2, verse 17, uh, through to 3, 5. When I was a kid, one of my, uh, one of my happiest memories was of going to the local uh, ball diamond with my dad and my brothers and assorted other neighbor kids, uh, neighborhood kids. My, my dad would take us and, and we'd go every once in a while, often on a Sunday, we'd, we'd go and we'd play baseball and we loved it. It was uh, just a highlight. So when I became a dad, uh, it was something that I wanted to do and passed on. And so our kids weren't in organized ball, but we went pretty, uh, pretty regularly through the summer months. Uh, over the years, we'd go play ball often on 40th Avenue behind Greenview School. There's a ball diamond there. We'd go, and we invited others. Some of you may have even joined us on occasion to play ball. But, but we would go, and we'd play ball uh, for a couple hours, uh, often on a Sunday afternoon or, uh, or an evening. And one particular time, typically I would do all the pitching, and uh, right from when my kids are little, they, they learn to hit, and I, w- I, would, I would do the pitching. And uh, this one particular occasion I want to tell you about, Chrislene was the bat catcher. She was uh, catching the pitches that were missed by whoever was up to bat and throwing them back to me. Uh, well, during, at, at one point in this game, I, I turned my attention, I had pitched the ball, and uh, the batter had, had missed it or it was a bad pitch, I don't recall. But I had turned my attention and I was engaged in conversation with someone else on the diamond. I don't know who it was or what, what they were asking or what we were talking about. But suddenly there was this loud, ear-piercing screech. I- intuitively, I realized what had happened. Christine had thrown the ball at me while I wasn't looking. And she realized that after the ball had been launched. I reflexively turned my head and covered and tried to shield myself from this incoming ball. And and just in time, I I saw it coming and I was able to react and catch it. No worse for wear. My my nerves were a little fried, but, but I had avoided worse. I had been warned. Uh, Christine's screech warned me that something was coming and I had time to react appropriately. This morning we turn once more to the book of Malachi uh, and we come to a passage in which God uh, warns his people about something that is coming, summoning them to respond appropriately. And before I read the text this morning, I want to remind you of what we've covered. And for those of you who are just joining us today, I bring you up to speed. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It is the final of the 12 minor prophets called minor, not because they're insignificant, but because they're short compared to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Uh, Malachi uh, closes the Old Testament. There's 400 years of silence between the close of the Old Testament and uh, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and the New Testament story begins. Uh, Uh, Malachi speaks around probably the middle of the 5th century. We don't know for sure. But what that means historically is that he's speaking in the post-exilic period. So Israel has already had their golden age, if you will, under King David and King Solomon. The nation has been torn apart because of their descent into sin and idolatry. Uh, Israel in the north has gone into exile in 722 B.C., invaded by the Assyrians, taken away, never to return. They're called the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. 
Uh, the southern nation of Judah lasted a little bit longer uh, till 586, where because of their unfaithfulness, they were invaded uh, by Babylon and they go into exile as well. But God promises a return. And so after 70 years, uh, there is a return. It's, it, it, things aren't what were expected, though. People are back in the land. A fraction of the population has returned. Eventually, by the time Malachi speaks and ministers, the temple has been reconstructed, but it, it, it pales in comparison to the glorious temple that Solomon had built. The temple that was built here in Malachi's day is the same temple that Jesus would one day uh, go to. The, the wall has likely been rebuilt, though much of Jerusalem is probably still in ruins, and the, the people of God remain under foreign control, the Persians, under the Persians' thumb. So things are not the way they were expecting them to be. Things seem bleak. The people are disappointed. They're cynical about their unique relationship with God. Their minds are full of doubts. And it's into that context that Malachi speaks. And this book, if you were with us, you'll remember that it begins with God making this declaration, I have loved you. And it's not just I loved you in the past. It's I have loved you and I love you still. It, It begins. Everything that we encounter in Malachi is grounded on that declaration with which the book begins. After that said, Yahweh has gone on and he has confronted his people on numerous things, uh, ways in which they are breaking the covenant, ways in which they are violating their covenant with God. First, that they are offering blemished sacrifices, blemished offerings. They're bringing garbage animals to the Lord, lame, diseased, animals that they would never bring and give to to an earthly ruler. And yet they're bringing those to God, and God says, you're dishonoring me by bringing these animals, these in clear violation of, the, of what the covenant law stipulated. Second, in the text we looked at last week, they're violating the covenant uh, with God in, in regards to marriage. They, they're divorcing uh, in marriage. Uh, some of the, the Israelite men, many of them are marrying pagan women foreign women. And remember, it's, it's about interfaith marriage that God said, no, don't marry someone who... who Worships another God. You need to be true to the people of God. So they're violating God's design for marriage. So one thing that should be clear to us at this point is that not all is well in regards to the relationship between God's people and God. They are living in violation of the covenant. They are not being faithful. They are not being obedient. We will see that reality once more in the text we look at today. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read uh, chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, 
adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I want to, in the time that we have remaining together, I want to ask four questions of our text with you. First, what is believed? Second, what is being done? Third, what is announced? And fourth, what is called for? What is believed, what is being done, what is announced, and what is called for? Question one, what is believed? We are given a window into what's going on in the minds of the Israelites here in the opening verse of our passage. Our text begins with these words on the lips of the prophet Malachi, addressing Israel, addressing God's people. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Eugene Peterson, in the message paraphrase, puts it this way. You make God tired with all your talking. Whether you're a parent dealing with an argumentative child or a student dealing with a quarrelsome classmate, or you fill in the blanks, an employer dealing with a difficult employee. We intuitively get this, don't we? Like, I'm just tired of your talking. Stop. That's the sense here. You have wearied God with your talking. Malachi's, they ask with the question, well, how have we wearied him? And, and Malachi's response uh, exposes the thoughts of God's people. Malachi answers uh, them by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them, or in saying, where is the God of justice? Let's look at these sayings in turn. First, one of their responses is, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them. And we need to understand that this is irony. No one actually believed this, actually. But in, in essence, what they are saying, what they are believing is that because God is doing nothing, because it looks like God is not responding to this, God must not really care about evil. It must not really bother him. It must not be a big deal. That's what this saying is getting at. Evil can't be a big deal because God's not doing it and he's not so bothered. And that belief, of course, what we believe uh, translates into what we do, how we live. That belief, of course, is, is affecting how the Israelites, God's people, are living. They are practicing evil as if it was acceptable. They, they are, they're giving garbage offerings to God in clear violation of the covenant. They are disregarding God's design for marriage. They're marrying pagan women. They are divorcing. They are disregarding God's law. They are living as if they are practicing evil as if it were acceptable. The second saying, the second thing that Malachi says is, uh, that they're saying is, where is the God of justice? And that expresses their doubt once more. Doubt that God is present with them. Doubt that, that God cares for them. That God is actually in any practical way involved in the nitty-gritty of their lives. Again, it is a statement that is reflective of how they're living. They are practicing injustice as if God is absent, as if God will never intervene. That's the life that they are living, and it arises from what they are thinking. And in response to those attitudes of the heart, those beliefs that are shaping their conduct, Malachi says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Now that, of course, is, is what is called an anthropomorphism. That's when we attribute human behavior or a human attitude to God. 
we, like I said, we understand this weariness of just talk, 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 and it's just like, stop. You've wearied God with your talk, with these beliefs, with these, this perspective. This is how this fourth disputation in the book of Malachi begins. And it reveals to us what, what God's people are thinking, what they are believing, what, what is going on in their heads. And, and what's going on in their heads is bearing fruit in their lives, rotten fruit. That's the reality. That's, that's, that is what is believed. Leads us to our second question, what is being done? What I'm getting at with this second question is, is how are the people of God living? What are they doing? We already know from the last two weeks some things that they're doing, but, but we can look ahead to verse 5 of this text to see more. <clears throat> verse 5 we read, So I will come, and come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fathers, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. This is a list of sins God's people are committing. Uh, there are seven listed. Now, we need to grasp that like most, most lists in Scripture, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not all they're doing wrong. This is representative. It, it, it probably some of the more prominent sins of Malachi's day, but, but it's representative. They are evidence, right? God, this is language of court, so I will come put you on trial. Here's evidence that God is going to level against them. This list of seven, these seven sins, each one of which is a clear violation of the Mosaic law, of God's covenant law. Sorcery included such things as consulting the dead or uh, a method of divination where you would take the liver of an animal and try and discern what the gods are telling you to do. These practices were specifically forbidden under the law. God says sorcery was an abomination, and yet God's people are practicing it. Adultery, we've already looked at that last week, a whole section where God speaks about their violation of God's design for marriage. Perjury. Perjury here is not simply lying, not simple dishonesty. That in it of itself is a violation of God's law, but this is uh, under oath, that is, you're taking God's name. You're saying, oh, I'll be truthful in the name of God, and then not. You're dishonoring God by misusing his name in your dishonesty. Cheaters, those who defraud laborers. In, in, the, ancient, in the ancient world, uh, there was a, call it a class of people who were day laborers. They were poor. They lived hand to mouth. They would go out and they would work all day for money so that they could eat then. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have a fridge with food at home. They needed to earn money today so they could eat today. And so this speaks of the Israelites uh, defrauding them, not giving them their wages, these day laborers who desperately need it. Goes on and speaks of the oppressors of widows and orphans. Widows and orphans were among the world's most vulnerable they're being ignored. They're not, no one's standing up for justice for them. Deprivers of justice for foreigners, think refugees. Those who were powerless among them. And God's people are mistreating them. They're failing to ensure that they're treated justly, rightly. The seventh and final sin included on the list is both a sin in itself, but also an apt summary of what, what's going on, and that is they, they do not fear the Lord. God says, uh, you do not fear me. In the book of Proverbs, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Knowledge, biblically speaking, is it's not just information. It's, it's information applied to life, if you will. Knowledge is knowing how to live well. You want to live well? That begins, Scripture says, with the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, it doesn't mean uh, terror where you run away from someone. It, 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 it means living in light of, of reality, of what's true. To live in the fear of the Lord is to recognize who God is, that He is almighty, that He is our creator, that He is good, that He is holy. To recognize the truth about who we are, that we are human beings created by Him, for Him, in His image, that, that we are called to obey Him. And so uh, living in the fear of the Lord means living in light of that reality. Tremper Longman asserts this, that fear of the Lord breeds humility and signals a willingness to receive instruction from God. It inevitably leads to obedience. To live in the fear of the Lord means to recognize who God is, to recognize who we are and what that means and live rightly in, in light of that truth. That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. And, and Yahweh says to his people, seventh sin listed here, this summary really, you're living not in the fear of me, not in the fear of the Lord. The people of God, the people to whom Malachi is speaking, are not living in the fear of the Lord. They are living like the pagan nations around them. They are living as if God doesn't care about evil. They are living as if God is absent and that God will never intervene in their lives, in their world. It leads us to our third question. What is announced? To a people who are living unfaithfully, to a people whose minds are now clouded with doubts, who don't think God actually cares about evil, who don't believe that God actually cares for them, who don't believe that God is actually present in their lives or involved, God announces this, I will send my messenger. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. This is maybe surprising, but this is an announcement of a great intervention. God uh, will intervene. This is the intervention of Yahweh in the affairs of His people. I will send my messenger. God says that He is going to intervene. It's interesting, isn't it, if we look at the text closely, that, that Yahweh is both the one sending and He is the one sent. The Lord, it says, the Lord will come to His temple. It's Yahweh who is going to show up. Yahweh is sending His messenger, and His messenger, the Lord, will show up in the temple. This is an Old Testament clue to the Trinitarian nature of God, where God the Father sends God the Son, where Jesus is Himself, Yahweh in human flesh. God announces that He is going to come that there will be this great intervention. But before the Lord Himself comes, another messenger will come first. We know, as those living on this side of the New Testament history, that that first messenger preparing the way is John the Baptist. A forerunner to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for Yahweh when He comes to His temple. This announcement of the coming of the Lord is what is regularly called throughout the pages of uh, the Scriptures, the day of the Lord. The prophets speak often of the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh. 
The day where Yahweh shows up. And the day of the Lord is spoken of often in the Old Testament prophetic writings. The day of the Lord was generally a day anticipated by the people of God as the day where Yahweh would usher in His reign over all the earth and exalt His people. The day when Yahweh would show up and, and would judge His enemies. And so generally this was anticipated as a day that would be good. Douglas Stewart writes this, At a future point, Yahweh will appear as conquering judge to vindicate the righteous swiftly and decisively defeat the, the wicked. And so God's people generally anticipated this as a good day. The assumption uh, that they had, of course, was that it would be a great day for them. But if we read the prophets carefully, we discover, uh, we discover grave warnings issued to the people of God. Indeed, it would be a day of God's judgment upon His enemies, but surprisingly, they often appear numbered among those enemies. Listen to what Amos writes about the day of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God's people anticipated that the day of the Lord would be a good day for them and a day of judgment for the enemies of God. In what they often hear from the prophets, the responsibility of the prophets was awesome, often to show them that, that they were enemies of Yahweh by their unfaithfulness, by rejecting the covenant relationship He had. Because of their unfaithfulness, because of their sin, they will find themselves on the wrong side of God's judgment. The coming day of the Lord will not be good news for them. The bleakness of the situation is captured in verse 3 where we read this. But, but who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? The question is rhetorical. No one can stand. They're guilty. They have violated the covenant. They cannot stand. When Yahweh's messenger of the covenant comes, he will be like a refiner's fire, Malachi says, or a launderer's soap. The word translated soap in the NIV is actually the word lie, which was used in laundry at some point in history, certainly back here, I think in more modern times, sometimes as well. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap or lie. It, it, lie was a chemical used in the past for washing clothes. It, but like fire, lie burns if you touch it. These are images of, imagery of agents of separation, if you will. Fire was used uh, to, to separate dross from other metals like silver or gold. Lie was used to separate dirt from fabric. Uh, on the one hand, hand, this imagery is used to speak of separating of separating those who are doing evil from those who are doing good. When the Lord, when Yahweh's messenger of the covenant comes, He will judge. He will separate with fire and lie. We encounter this imagery of separating throughout the Scriptures. Jesus Himself speaks about the separating of the sheep from the goats. 
But there is more going on here. The imagery has a certain fluidity to it. We read on. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. This is not only a a word of warning about coming judgment. It, It is also the promise of God's saving intervention in this world and in the lives of those to whom His messenger comes. Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant, Yahweh in the flesh, the messenger of Yahweh would come to those who are unfaithful. He would come to those who are sinful. And He would walk through the fire. He would be plunged into the lie that burns. He he would go to the cross for you and for me, bearing the penalty for our sin, for our unfaithfulness, thereby purifying us, thereby cleansing us. If you're with us this morning and you are not a disciple of Jesus, you've never trusted in Jesus, I want you to be really clear about this truth at the heart of the Christian faith. We don't clean ourselves up and make ourselves acceptable to God. We cannot purify ourselves. We can only come as we are to God's messenger, Yahweh's messenger of the covenant, who has come to to separate. And our only hope is that He would cleanse us. And in Jesus, in, through faith in Jesus, we are cleansed. We are forgiven. Our penalty is paid. We are clothed with His righteousness. We are adopted. We, we are brought into His family, His people. Alone, apart from Christ, apart from Yahweh's messenger of the covenant, none can stand. None can stand, but in Him we can. In Christ, in Yahweh's messenger, we can stand. That leads us to our fourth and final question, what is called for? The text goes on to speak of this messenger, purifying the Levites, refining them. Let me read. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of several, he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable. Why the Levites? Why is that where the messenger begins? The Levites were those who led God's people in worship. The messenger starts with them because it is through their ministry that the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will become acceptable. Right now, uh, the Israelites are bringing unacceptable offerings to God. In fact, the text I read from Amos says, I don't care about your offerings. I'm, I'm not going to respond to that because there's no justice. There's no righteousness. There's a disconnect. See, the Israelites here in Malachi said this two weeks ago. They're going through the religious motions, but their hearts are far from God. And so here this speaks of purifying the Levites because the Levites are those who lead God's people in worship, in worship that is acceptable. Elizabeth Ackmeyer writes this, Being thus rightly taught and led, the people too will know God and enter into right relationship with Him. The idea here is that through the ministry of the Levites, the people of God will likewise be purified. They will be led into right worship, acceptable worship. Now what's that all about? Why this focus on worship? Because worship is about far more than music. 
Worship is about far more than what we do for a few minutes on Sunday morning. It's about far more than music. Rightly understood, all of life is worship. All of life is, is about living for God, for the glory of God, for the delight of God, being delighted in Him and living for His delight. Worship is about living in right relationship with Him. A life of surrender. A life of obedience. Back to the Amos text, God wants His people to live justly. He wants them to practice righteousness. Not, not as a means of gaining favor with God. Not, not as a means of cleaning ourselves up. But as a profound act of gratitude. And one that flows inevitably from a right relationship with God, when we recognize His love that is first, when we recognize the, the, the amazing sacrifice the messenger of Yahweh has made out of love for us to cleanse us, when we see that God is good, that He made us to be His image bearers, to reflect His character, His likeness, when we, when we recognize that we, we are most human and most filled with joy when we live rightly before Him, This is fleshed out in a myriad of ways. He, he spoke of their perjury. When, when we live truthfully as truth-tellers, uh, when we live as people who are fair and, and generous with those who are in need, when we stand for justice and care for those who are most vulnerable, the marginalized, the poor, the, the widows, the orphans, the the foreigners, the refugees. When we treat all that we encounter as, as precious, as men and women created in the image of God, that's what God longs for. He longs that we would live rightly, not in order to gain favor, but because of His prior love for us. He calls us to obedience to lives of growing in obedience, rooted in a response to His love that is prior. Remember, remember how Malachi begins, I have loved you, and I love you still. Isn't that amazing when you think of all that they are doing? Their offerings that are blind and lame and diseased. Their unfaithfulness in marriage. Violating His covenant. Practicing injustice, sorcery. Yet, before all of that, God says, I loved you and I love you still. This is not about sinless perfection. This is not about meriting God's favor. God knows what we are, to quote the psalmist. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. But we must not live as the Israelites were living. The Israelites were living lives of complete indifference to God. Lives characterized not by righteousness and justice, but by evil. They, they were believing that God doesn't really care. It's not a big deal how I live. They were treating God's love as a cheap thing. Treating grace as something cheap. Brothers and sisters, we are called into the rhythm of daily repentance where we sin, we, we run to the cross and we celebrate what God has done. And we, we turn from our sin and we strive to obey 
learning to walk in ways that honor God, the one who loves us. See, the good news is, is about Yahweh's messenger. The gospel is the good news about what Yahweh's messenger has accomplished. Christ has paid for our sin. Christ has, through his death for us, purified us. He has cleansed us. He has clothed us with his righteousness. He has filled us with his spirit. Do you understand this? That as those who are in Christ, those who have repented and believed, that do you realize that the very presence and the very power of God Almighty indwells us as his people? Christ has filled us with his spirit. We read this in 2 Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We will never not need God's grace. We need his grace when we fail and we fail regularly. We need his grace to empower us in obedience. When we obey, we give him all the glory because it's his power at work in us. But I want you to understand this. We are not doomed to live lives of slavery to sin. In, Paul, in Romans 6, Paul says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. The people of Israel addressed here were living lives of indifference, like evil was not a big deal, like sin was not a big deal. They were indifferent towards the will of God. And that is their greatest sin at the very heart of this. And here Yahweh is calling out to them, I have loved you and I love you still. And I will send my messenger, the messenger of the covenant. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is those, only those purified by the messenger. Only those who come to the messenger to be refined, to be changed, to be transformed by him, for him, and for his glory. This passage in Malachi is an invitation. It is, it is that screech on the ball diamond. It is a, a heads up. Yahweh speaks to his people. He cries out to a people who are ignoring him, who are living indifferently towards him. And, and he says, heads up, a, a day is coming, the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord is coming, and that day will be either a day of salvation or a day of judgment. And it's not based on our performance. It's based on whether we've come to him, whether we are in relationship with him. In the New Testament, all references to the day of the Lord are speaking of the return of Christ to Christ's second coming. And, and it will be a day of separating. For those who live with indifference towards Yahweh and His will, it will ultimately be a day of judgment. But for all who respond to the love of Yahweh, for all who look to the messenger of Yahweh, to all, for all who look to Christ, the Messiah, the cross, and what He's done, it will be a glorious day of salvation. Indeed, a day is coming. We're called to keep our heads up, to look up, to look to Christ, to look to God's messenger. Amen.